One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. Today I am joined with a guest from London. Hi, yeah, all the way in London. Bless you for doing this so early in the morning, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you are an angel. Um, I'm Chani Ra. Yeah, I'm actually from Brighton, but I've lived in London for a few years now. That's where I am right now. Um, I'm a survivor of many kinds of abuse. I wouldn't. I never even really know which one to say because I'm just like. It's all under the abuse umbrella. Um, yes. Yeah. And I write. And yeah, that's me. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so you have just released your second book and I'm going to get you to, so can you tell me a bit about it um, and then we'll get you to to read a little bit of it at the end. Okay, sure. Yeah. I have to, oh God, which one should I read? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll um, so yeah, it's my second book. So this one is called So Far So Close. Um, I write poetry books. Um, and this book, I feel like I have to kind of explain a bit about the first one for it to kind of make sense. Not that it's like sequential, but my first book I put out was like, after I was just coming out of like, just another tornado of like traumatic events. And I was doing a lot of writing and stuff, which I've always done since I was young, like to sort of deal with things and a lot of paintings. And it ended up being this like mixed media project, but it was sort of cobbled together of loads of old, old, old journal entries from when I was younger. So it was sort of already written for me. I didn't really have to put a lot of new material in because it was sort of like just scribblings from my life, really. Um, It was really interesting and sort of therapeutic to go back and do that. And I sort of describe them now as like Celebrate, which is my first book, is like the chaotic younger sister of So Far So Close. <laughs> so Far So Close is like an adult version where it's a bit more organized. It's just writing. There's no illustrations this time. Um, it's like a proper book. You know, the other one is sort of like on the edge of being a zine, but a book, but it's a bit of everything. I, it's the punk rock little sister. Um, and this <laughs> one is sort of like, some similar topics are covered. Um, abuse is one of them. I cover a lot of different topics in this one. It's sort of more of just like a general humanhood experience. We talk about race. We talk about, you know, what it's like to be a woman in society. I talk about abuse. I talk about absent parents and just growing up in that way. But I also talk about happy things, which is something that's very new for me in writing. I was like, it's sort of like 
the way I describe it on the back is it's sort of like a hopeful look forward, but still acknowledging the past at the same time and just sort of saying, okay, everything makes sense now. Not that I'm happy about it, but it makes sense and I can kind of go to the next phase. So yeah. it's a bit more uplifting than my very, very depressing first book. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they all have a place in the world. I love that so much. Um, when I was growing up, the like I'm not from a very like a musical family or anything, um, but I always loved music. So I found writing music or not. I can't actually play an instrument. I mean, writing songs like lyrics. Yeah. Um, I, that's what I would do, and I found that so therapeutic because for me as well. I think when you're writing, if I was to journal, it wouldn't be the same because you're trying to get like a final product together and you want to make your point. So trying to write a song for me was really therapeutic because um, I kind of automatically filtered out some of the things that did not matter to me. Like you were saying, it gets rid of the things that aren't important because I guess it has a structure. So firstly, it's adding structure to something probably very chaotic, which already is like kind of makes sense, goes hand in hand, right? But then it's like obviously – the difference of journaling and songwriting is you have like a word limit to make things flow. So it would make you get to the point of what you were really feeling. So yeah, it kind of makes sense. So you said that you are from Brighton and mm-hmm. now you're in London. Um, can you tell me a bit like about yourself growing up and um, and what moved you to London and what you're up to at the moment? Um, growing up, it's, it's so funny. I don't know if you've, have you been to the UK much or no? I've never been to Europe. Right, it's very far, so I can imagine why. Because <laughs> I've never been to Australia. Um, Brighton is like a seaside town. It's like on the coast of England. It's like southest you can get. A yeah, it's right at the bottom, right? From, yeah, a lot of people when I say I'm from there, like, oh my god, it must be so nice because it has this sort of like vision of being quite like a posh, like nice seaside town. But I'm from like a very bad neighbourhood, so firstly, it just doesn't apply to me at all. So I'm just well spoken. I'm not posh at all. I'm from like I think there was a there was an article about my blog that called it the Compton of the South of Sussex, <laughs> like, which might have been a bit of an exaggeration, but there was a lot of drugs. It's a really, really drug town. Um, it's a really high rate of like heroin users. Like it's just. Yeah, it's like one little area that's nice. And then the rest of it is kind of like, we've got some of the highest homelessness in the country, highest heroin rates. I think we were one of the only parts of England that was still making its own drugs and not actually getting them imported from other countries. Like, it was a big problem there. So growing up was weird. Like, my dad was like, sort of involved in a lot of gang activity and like, strange things that I don't really know about, but he was in jail a lot. Um my mum was like a single teen mom. It's a very like typical story, you know? Yeah. So it was just sort of that very stereotypical, like textbook upbringing of like, these are the things, that's why you're going to be crazy when you're older. And I'm like, no, I'm not crazy. And it's like, oh yeah, no, I am. Um, it all makes sense. But yeah, I mean, my mum had a lot of different men coming in and out of the house. Like when I was growing up, she went through a lot of boyfriends. A couple of them were normal. Most of them were not. I feel like, Something that I don't remember, but I've heard people relay to me quite a lot is that when I was two, one of her boyfriends held me hostage with a bow and arrow because he thought he was a pirate because he didn't take his medication. It was a lot of these kind of insane situations. Right, yeah. I feel like Brighton are very normal because people in Brighton are not quite right. It's just a lot yeah. of like characters. Uh, yeah. That's, um, um, that must be terrifying for you to hear because obviously you're two, yeah. you can't remember that. So you must be yeah. quite out of body yeah. experience. Well, I mean, I think it's just because he was like unmedicated and having a breakdown because like it was funny. I would bump into him when I was older 
and he was always so nice to me. And everyone was like, yeah, like he treated you like his own child, but I guess he was just going through some stuff. But yeah, I, I mentioned that to sort of paint the picture of the things that my mum thought was okay. Yes. Okay. That was why, yeah. I mean, he was just going through his own things, but yeah, it was a lot of like not safe environments for children that I was sort of just grew accustomed to. Um, but I guess the reason we're here in this podcast is once I got to like sort of 11, my sister was born. I've got different parents, different dads. And when I was, I don't even know, I'm sure this is very common on this podcast. Like, I don't remember how old I was when my abuse happened. Okay. Like, yeah. I roughly remember. I was either like 12 or 13, I think. Like, it's one of those, I've got like a sort of five, six year window that I just don't, I can't get it in the right order, which I think is yeah. very common. Very yeah, common. But um, yeah. he would come into my bed quite a lot. Is this but, um your your sister's father? father I guess. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. and it was a weird situation because I would always wake up just before anything happened. I think, like, I can't remember specific incidences of him like doing things to me, but I can remember him like having his hand on me. So like things were on the edge of going well it was already too far because why are you in a teenager's bedroom but you know what I mean before it got to maybe his goal I would always wake up and I guess growing up in the sort of environment I grew up in I wasn't always that scared of people so every time it happened I would punch him in the face so no every time I don't know what what, like I guess I think I spent most of my childhood in fight or flight yeah, I think it's I was just the last few years. Yeah, yeah. Only the last few years that I've sort of mellowed out, and I'm kind of not in that headspace anymore. But I realised from a very young age I was always in this reactive sort of headspace. So I would see him and scream, and just my instant thought was just to beat him up. So I'll punch him in the head, and then my mom would come and take him out of the room, yeah. and then she would sit with me for a minute and be like, "It's okay." Like he didn't know what he was doing. Like this is fine, and re- reassure me that this is okay. And then we wouldn't talk about it again. And it happened on a few different occasions. Mm. One time it happened when I had a friend staying over and he was laid on his stomach on a skate- my skateboard trying to creep into my room. He didn't know that we were awake. So I wonder how he creeped in before because his whole thing, he was an alcoholic. So he would always say, oh, I got, went to the wrong room. That was his like, sort of cover story. But then the way mm. he was sneaking in, I was awake. I was like, well, and he saw my friend and he ran out and started throwing up. So it was like, you know, he obviously realised there was somebody else there that probably was go to the police. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah. He he beat me up a couple of times as well. Like, you know, he it was weird because he from this jump of my of his relationship with my mum, he said, like, I don't like your daughter. Like we never got along, but she didn't really care. So it was always like her sort of way of dealing with it was more trying to balance our personalities rather than just see it as a red flag and be like, No, you're not moving into our house kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, um, that happened. So for years, we just like nothing had really happened about it. He moved out of our house a couple of years. Again, was it a year later or like two years? I can't remember when he moved out, but eventually he moved out. But that that was like a part of the reason, but it wasn't the reason, which is something that sort of was hard for me to swallow for a long time. It was like that wasn't the final reason why he left. Um, Definitely. Yeah. So I, yeah, for years, like it caused a really bad relationship, obviously in the family. Like I was just angry since that point. I was angry before that because he he was abusive to me in different ways before that sort of mentally and like, 
you know, the way he was spoken to me, like, there's different ways of abusing people, right? So it was already a toxic environment before he started doing things like that to me. And like, even after that, he would make comments about like my breasts getting bigger, like when no one was around and stuff, which he denies to this day. So I know that it was motivated in that way. A lot of people were like, oh no, he yeah. just went to the wrong room. And I was like, listen, I used to drink like every day. I used to come home and not even know how I got home. I never went to the wrong bedroom. You know, and all of these things, but the bedroom is where you got lost. Like, come on now. Really? When you get in, it's sort of where you realize where you are, you, you know. And to continually but. do it as well. And I think what you're describing as well with your background, um, usually people who have grown up in that type of environment are so in tune with their fight and flight response um, and so in tune with risk assessing their day-to-day activities. So, like, it's like a child, yeah, who grows up in um, domestic abuse families with um, mm-hmm. a mother or father that's extremely abusive, they know very quickly whether this is yelling or whether this is about to escalate. And that's that yeah. instinctively yeah. gut instinct that goes, bang, this is fight or flight. Whereas mm-hmm. people who haven't grown up in that type of environment are kind of, I think, typically in children less decisive about it. Um, so that's probably why if you've had so many people in and out all of the time and you've been in situations that aren't 100% normal where you're risk assessing, mm-hmm. That's probably why your skills are so honed because you have been doing that for a long time. But what yeah. you're talking about with him, which I'll ask you to explain maybe a bit more because I'm, I'm mm-hmm. anticipating some different um, – he, he's grooming you. I mean the, the grooming process is definitely trying to um, normalise and break down a boundary with somebody yeah. over time. And by pushing you down and by – manipulating your mother into saying that it's your fault he's deflecting from the grooming that he's doing like we just don't get along and it's almost setting him up for a defense if you're to turn around and tell her what's happening because then he'll just go she just doesn't get along with me you know like it's um it worked (laughs) well it sounds like it's very careful and I think people often think grooming is an obvious behavior it's called grooming for a reason it's very covert and anybody is able in their life to be manipulated like i don't care if you're the most senior barrister or something in the world you're still able to be manipulated like one thing that they teach yeah definitely which everyone has one yeah well one thing that they teach you know, um, psychiatrists and psychologists who interview criminals, for example, mm. they have to be honed into the fact that they will at some point be manipulated by what they're yeah. doing. And you have to have all of the information so that you can be objective. So mm. it doesn't matter who you are is my point. You can be yeah. groomed. And grooming isn't just grooming the child. It is grooming the family. Mm. And it is grooming the people around you to normalise the behaviour that's going on. So if he's yeah. constantly got this excuse where he's coming into your room even or even before mm. that, then and that's normalised, that's part of that process, but it's still yeah, 100%. That must be um, quite infuriating for you to think about now. Yeah. it was. I mean, the thing is, is one thing I will say is like two things I will say. Firstly, back to the fight or flight thing you were saying, I used to be really thankful that I had that instinct because I was like, I was always sort of, I think a lot of survivors have this thing where like we'll always compare our situation with somebody else's like oh it could have it could have been worse 
you're almost feel guilty for feeling bad for yourself because someone somewhere has it worse. And for a while, because it never crossed into God knows what else, I almost felt like I didn't have the right to say that I was being abused for years. And for years, I was like, I'm so happy that I woke up because it, I, I, my mental health was so bad after that. And I was just thinking if, if I didn't wake up, it would, I would be even worse. But now I'm like, no, I think it would have been the same. It's not the fact of how far he got. It's the fact that it, he was there in the first place. And it was the sort of way it unfolded afterwards, I think. I, 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 don't, I don't think it made it better. And I had to get out of the habit of telling myself that it was somehow better than other people's situations. And I mean, I found out because later on, which isn't really going to be much of a part of this story, but I guess a little fun fact of throwing on the side, that eventually when I was 19, I was raped. And that's when I realised it's the same. <laughs> it didn't matter. Same. What was happening. It was the same. Like, yeah. you know, um, but yeah, so... I guess, yeah, the grooming thing, you're nail on the head because it completely worked. And what happened after that was I was like spiraling mentally and it was very easy then for him to paint me as a problem child. And that's how it happened. Oh, Chani is so aggressive. She's out of control. I don't know what to do with her. My daughter's crazy. She's so violent. She's so this, she's so that. But the way I describe it is like, because I was so angry every day about that situation, the smallest thing could happen, but I was already on 100 you know, so it was like me and my mom would fight physically on a regular basis. A lot of it, I will say, was incited by her. But I mean, as a child, sometimes you, you like, you know, you, you make a slap on the wrist and you, you know that's a sign to like, OK, I'm, I'm being disciplined. I will hit back. Yeah. And it was because it's because I can pinpoint it now. Why? Like I talked to some of my other friends that was so like not scared of their parents, but they it was a respect thing. She lost my respect. How can you discipline someone that doesn't respect you? You can't. Yeah, absolutely. So, that was the narrative. And, you know, I felt like I would tell other people, but she would always get their first thing, but like, oh, this terrible thing happened with Chani and he went into her bedroom and she's so shaken up by it. But I've had to reassure her that he was just lost. And da, 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 da. So I couldn't talk to anybody because everyone was like, they were feeling sorry for me, but nobody felt like they could, they should go to the police because she'd already, the adult in the situation had diffused it to everyone that we knew. She was taught that the way they handled it in her generation of the family was like her abuser apologized to her and it was all fine now. Right, and a part okay, of me so is angry that she repeated that. But a part of me is like, that's all she knew, yeah. you know? So it's like, I just don't really think anything of it anymore. I'm just kind of like, was, was she right or wrong? I don't know what mental state she was in. She, you know, we, we're in a generation where we kind of get therapy and stuff. That generation, they weren't really doing that. So not no. that I... Well, I think it's right what she did, but I just have to accept that that's how it was. And yeah. I don't know and what think, led up to that, but I know she experienced similar things to me. Um, and I think it um, it comes back to it as well, right? She's clearly done things that were wrong and there are adults in your life that that have failed you. Every adult in Australia basically is a mandated reporter. I'm not sure about the UK. It's different in America. You have to mean? be a certain – so you can be a certain type of person in the States, but – Basically here, if you're above 18 and you see something that endangers a child, you are mandated by law to report that. So if I'm 18, I witness something that is concerning and concerning can be a lot of different things, but if it can lead you to believe that a child could be in harm Uh or in danger, that has to be reported. And if some, so say it, it isn't reported, you kind of go, well, nothing's going to happen. Well, that's right. Nothing will happen. But if it is reported on later and it is comes to fruition that you were aware of this and you did nothing about it, you will be charged. 
that's a committing well, I, I a crime. Yeah, I don't know if we have that here. I'm the, I don't I don't think we do actually, because when I, later on we'll get to where I actually did go to the police, but. If that was a thing, I would probably would have known about it by now because you're going to love the justice part of this story because it's just, I don't know if you have this word in Australia, but we call it a fuckery. A fuckery. <laughs> I mean, yeah, our justice system is also a bit of a fuckery. Yeah. I think that you so, do, but each country's mandated laws are very different. I think the UK's will be more like ours, which is probably why in America everybody's aware of this because only certain people have to do it, like teachers and doctors. Right. Um, so it's much more of a thing that they talk about over there. Where here is, it's just a fucking expectation that if you're a fucking adult, you do that to protect yeah. children. Um, but which makes it is, yeah, definitely. But I think as well, we focus so much on what the woman has done, mm. and I hate that. Like you've been failed by it, and and it really is terrible and awful but your mum's failure what if she was not there or anything like that that still would have happened and what I get really annoyed about is we always tend to blame the women in the story and you know he's the perpetrator he's the one doing it she did fucking massively fail you in in a lot of ways in that area as her child that she should be protecting but he is the one that perpetrated the crime. No, and I that's- you, when I got older, I came mm. straight for his neck. But the only reason I relay the story in that way is because that's how I remember it. From yeah, definitely. Of a child. Yeah. And from a child, I felt like he didn't owe me anything. But that's my parent, you know? Yeah. As I got older, well, we'll get to that. I came straight for his neck. But um, because it was weird, because obviously I was like still like a child after this. So I was still living with my mum, you know? I was in school, I was, yeah, a quote-unquote problem child, being doing God knows what, just acting out because I was mentally, like, in pain, really, with what we can say now. But, you know, it wasn't painted in that way. And um, I would still have to see him at holidays and stuff, my sister's birthday. It was like a family tradition that I would smash my plate across the room every Christmas. Like, it was like that. I didn't give a fuck. Like, I was just, I wasn't going to make, I wasn't quiet about the fact that I wasn't happy about it. And I've always been that kind of person. I mean, I'm not aggressive <laughs> anymore, but I've always been somebody that when I see something wrong, I can't be quiet about it. Like, yeah. I think I'm a bit obsessed with justice in a weird way. Like, I've always been, I'm quite confrontational and I'm not afraid to stand up for what I think. So when you're an angsty teenager going through this kind of thing, it manifests in the ways they manifest, right? So it was a lot of those kind of like, sort of horrible family situations where it looks like I was the sort of ringleader of it, but when you look at it in the bigger picture, I was kind of the victim of it, right? But, but you're a child as well, so... And I was also a child, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Teen, hormone, everything in the mix, you know. But as I got older, my mental health declined even worse because if you've got to factor in, you know, you become a teenager, you start drinking, right? You start doing drugs. So I was doing drugs and drinking since I was 15. Yeah. Then I started doing drugs when I was 16, but I was drinking since, actually, I was, drinking since I was 13. That's, is that normal in Australia too? In England, we start young. So like, I don't know, 13, what are you doing every weekend? You're going to the park and getting chased around by police trying to drink in bushes. That's how we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, we weren't that young, but like, I think we, I have this memory of leaving school and I think I would have been 14 or 15 and 
we left school and we all shared a light beer, like one low alcohol <laughs> beer. Oh, we oh, thought no. we were badasses. <laughs> yeah. My dad found out as well. I'm like, how? Why are you counting your light beers? But anyway, <laughs> oh, it was wild. So yeah, the fact that it's just that young where I grew up. Anyway, I don't know if it's just a Brighton thing or like an England thing. From my friends that I speak to from all over the country, it seems like it's kind of a general a normal, UK yeah. way of life. You just start early. I don't know. I was in school. I was sort of like never really someone that boys were into. But once I started sneaking into clubs when I was 15, I realized that my, this is so sick to say, but this is my teenage mind, not my grown up mind. Oh, I found my demographic. These guys like me. I'm like, no, these are creepy older guys that can tell how old I am. And I'm just hooking up with older men every weekend, 15, 16, 17. The first time I was ever ID was on my 18th birthday. Yeah. I would do like a really similar thing because I was sneaking into clubs after I got assaulted, which was when I was 14 and that's when my spiral started. I didn't have as much respect for my own safety. Like I think back to things and I'm like, holy shit. And I I had – I actually stole a heap of stuff and I got caught by the police. And this is some straight-up white privilege talking, so I just want to acknowledge that. But um, I – the police were called and they walked me out and I was talking to them. They were going to arrest me and call the um, call my parents and everything. And I was talking to them and they could see on the system basically what I had gone through. And this police officer said to me, you're going through a lot, but it doesn't give you any right to take from other people. And he said, from now on, every single month, I'm going to check your name in the system. If you get one more offense, I will charge you with this and you will be going to juvenile detention. And he, he, I don't know if he did that, but I don't know, I don't know who he is. I actually probably credit him with saving my life yeah. because that was the wake up call I needed. Yeah. To go, I am doing the wrong things. I'm consistently putting myself in danger. Um, but like, yeah, back to before that happened, like, yeah, I was going to clubs doing pills yeah. all the time, like, um, and hooking up with guys that were older and you get told oh, you're so mature for your age. And it's yeah, like, no, no. no, you're, you're fucked. Like that is yeah. fucking a, a 28 year old man and a 16 year old girl is not okay. The consent no. laws are there for 19 to 17 kind of thing. Not for this grown ass men going for young girls that they can manipulate. But we, obviously I, I completely feel you. I felt so important and I felt so sexy and mature for my age and I thought my trauma maybe had matured me but looking back yeah that's the I see the lenses because at the time you think you're amazing and you look back on it now and you feel you just want to hug your younger self. And you think you're completely healed as well. Even though you're having breakdowns every five seconds, somehow, because you're doing these things and you're choosing to do them, it's like, yeah, this hasn't affected me. This has nothing to do with the fact that I was abused, which is like, it's just, I don't know. I just think I'm, I like to be defiant sometimes. And I think I was just trying to go against the grain, but it's like, you're the grain. This is, (laughs) that's why this is happening. That's so true. Um, (laughs) That's exactly what I did. (laughs) Yeah. And one thing that I spoke with my therapist about a lot, and I'm sure like it makes perfect sense to me. And I don't know, you've probably heard this before. Maybe you haven't, but because I hadn't when we got to it, it was one of those eureka moments. It was like, you were putting yourself in dangerous positions on purpose. Because the last time you were in danger, it wasn't your choice. It's like, how did you, you're going to walk the line as much as you can now because you just want to feel 
the control of it. So I was putting myself in the situation. I look back at the things I was doing, like it was almost like a death wish. And I, th- I do think it was a kind of suicidal tendency to be like, maybe I haven't got, I don't want to say the courage, but that's how I felt all the time because I was having suicidal thoughts and I would get to that point and then not do things. And it was more like, let me see if someone else will take me out. And that sounds horrible to say, but it was like, I would walk 45 minutes home from the club through the parks. And I mean, I was walking along the seafront for most of it. Do you know what I mean? Wearing the tiniest outfits. I was in my big like goth slut face, wearing nothing. Because when you're that age, you just, you don't even get cold when you're 18. Like, you know, walking like six and a half, seven, eight inch boots, heels, like the prime target of someone that can't run away from you. Do you know what I mean? If you're, yeah. But I was like, I'm going to walk, I'm not going to get a cab. And I would see men follow me. And I, I remember one time that, oh God, it just, like, it shakes me to my core when I think about it. Because on one hand, I'm like, girl, you're bold. Like, respects to you. But also I'm like, this could have gone so horribly wrong. And to anyone listening, I don't advise this approach to this type of situation at all. And I'm very lucky that in this one instance, it works. And like, But I remember this guy was following me home, like, the whole way. And I was, like, crossing the road, you know, trying to make sure he was to see if he was following me because I wasn't sure. And he'd been following me since I left the club. And I got near to my house. And I was like, I don't want him to know where I live. So I turned to him. Oh, I don't even want to think. I, should I even say this? Maybe if you think this is too bad, what I said, maybe cut it out because I don't want to give people like bad, I don't know, ideas. But I turned to him and I said, if you're going to rape me, can you do it now? Because I really want to go home. Whoa. And he was so taken aback from what I said, he just ran away. But I always think, I think I was 17, but I always think that could have ended a really different way. It hurts to think about because I'm like, oh, that could have ended very differently it but one thing I'll say have... is where I grew up is like there's a lot of crazy people and people will follow you but I feel like growing up where I grew up most of the time the crimes that happen and the people you encounter it, are scary but it's normally because they're really really high and they don't know where they are as opposed to like stab you it, we did get a lot of stabbings in my area actually but it was mainly like you, could, you sort of learn to decipher like who is sort of like gang affiliated or trying to rob you or who is like a, a, a person really suffering on drugs so I, I I was prefaced that story with that is like kind of like I could kind of tell he wasn't with it mm. you kind of learn to discern but yeah it was things like that but getting back to the track of the story I told you I got off track quite a lot but no I do too but I do want to quickly cover that because I think like, that um that what you're talking about when you've said that to him yeah. most offenders and this is something that people they've got this stuck in their mind and it it's like actually in Australia recently the chief of defense so like the head of the Australian defense force the armed forces everything he told all of the recruits coming in um all of the very young recruits to follow the four a's which were avoid alcohol don't be out after dark or after midnight or something um avoid being attractive and I can't remember the fourth one because they're all fucking stupid or dress appropriately or whatever. But people um, blame victims and and they always talk about what what our behaviour is but and they've got it in their mind that you have to be attractive or something. Most people who who perpetrate sexual crimes against specifically strangers, like a stranger Mm -hmm. attack, usually what Mm -hmm. they're after is power and control. They want to see your fear they want to take that from you it's not as much about the sexual gratification for them is also in the fear of it all 
And yeah, you're turning yeah, around and saying that you've taken away the control from him immediately. Yeah. And that is probably that probably saved your life because you're no longer a desirable target. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I don't know, I wouldn't condone it as a tactic, but I mean, what tactic's fucking going to work? You've got to risk no. assess your own the situation. Reason I, the reason why I say it, and I'm all, like, whenever this comes up, I, I'm always so like adamant that I'm not like saying this is like a good thing to do, is because you never know if someone's just a sex offender. Yes. And you can get beat. You could completely, like, somebody could just, like, like you're saying, you interrupted their plan. That could incite rage in somebody. You don't know if they've got a weapon. You don't know what. They could be, like, a rapist and a serial killer. Do you know what I mean? It's just, I just would never, this, I used to just, my whenever I came across a guy that I thought was dangerous, my instant reaction was to square up to them. Yeah. And like I almost wanted to have a fight with them. Like, I wanted them to fight me because I wanted to get to hit another abuser. But then what did I do when I was getting abused? I hit, like, it was a weird kind of taking you back to that place i just yeah. don't think there's you're right nothing's gonna make it better i just don't think i just think i was lucky that night because i think it could yeah. have gone very wrong for me i think personally. it's important to talk about though because i think when we yeah. like you're saying you know you're risk assessing all these situations all the time you can tell are they drug affected are they in a manic state are they actually after you are they going to rob you like yeah. you can i think you instinctively know and um, it was in a book I just read. Um, I think it's called The Power of Fear. It's really good. Um, you instinctively know your situation. And I think you've got to let your instincts talk a little bit to what yeah. you think. I mean, nine times out of 10, we're going to tell people that make a heap of noise if they're not too close to yeah. you. Try and get help. Try and, you know, scream fire instead of rape because for some reason people might respond more, which makes me furious mm-hmm. that I know that or that I think that. Or that yeah. I've been taught that since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think this is a legitimate thing that people need to have in their toolkit to know. If they're looking at somebody and they think that they're they're a sexual deviant, maybe it is something worth trying yeah. if they I maybe don't know. it is, but what I say is you didn't hear it from me. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't wanna be like I just have horrible images of all of these people coming into my DMs like you shouldn't tell people to do that I don't want to tell anyone to do anything is what I'm saying anything that I say in this podcast is not advice I think that's what I'm trying and one thing that I like I don't know I look at I look at this whole abuse thing so differently than I used to in that I used to when when I was younger my main source of anger was just the fact that he had the audacity to even do like do that to me now I look at it as a sort of longer timeline and I'm what the, what I'm most angry about is how much that experience changed me as a person and all of the knock-on effects it had afterwards and how much recovery I had to do and how much work I'm still doing on myself just because of that like few minutes of his life that actually angers me even more than the fact that it happened and I almost like if I could no I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say but like I feel like the that like the, the incident itself is the shortest part of the story, right? Yeah. Everything that makes it a tale is like the 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 way it changes you. And I think that is what makes me the most furious. Because it's like so yeah, I was in that terrible space. I was partying so much and still adamant, by the way, that this was just me making my own decisions and it was nothing to do with anything else. And I was just living my wildest, funnest life and that was what I thought at the time. And it was when I got a bit older that I realized like, wow, this isn't the right path. Um, 
I ah, oh, I missed something actually important out that when I when I got to sixteen, which is just before I started really getting heavily into drugs, it was like when I just turned sixteen, my first boyfriend was twenty one. So yeah. I was sort of putting not I'm not actually putting myself in these positions, but I felt like I was going for what was familiar at this point. Mm-hmm. Like definitely because I thought that you was don't like see so the danger. Cool. Yeah, you and don't again, see the danger. My mum knew that I was dating a 21 year old, and she didn't have anything bad to say about it. And I almost wondered was I testing her a little bit? Like, well, I don't know because I mean, I, I was dating. Yeah, I think I was 15 and I was dating a 22 year old. And yeah. then after that, I was 16 and I was dating a 25-year-old. Yeah. And my mum got so angry at me for breaking up with one of them because he was an AFL football player, which is like our right. like a, a soccer player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and she, was so, she didn't talk to me for weeks because she thought that, like, I would have lived a good life with this idiot who's right. collectively known as the ugliest man in the AFL, by the way. So, um, <laughs> but I think, like, for me, you know, I hold anger for that now. I do very much hold. But that was normal for her growing up. Yeah. I believe. And it has been normalised in society. I think maybe yeah. now with me pushing the agenda of this and pushing this it's making people see things more but at the time I don't think that our family our parents level of age saw that as a problem I'll tell you why I think I was testing her in hindsight because mm. when I was 19 I was dating a 34 year old but and I was dating him for like f- nearly five years but with this when I was 16 the difference in when I was 16 and when I was 19 in those relationships I knew it was weird and the reason I wouldn't admit it to myself then, but the reason that I knew I knew it was weird was because I was I just left school, but I still had my like exams. We call them GCSEs. I don't know what your ones are. We had our like sort of final high school exams. So I still had to go into school every couple of weeks to do tests. And I remember it was around that time that we started dating. And there were so many times where I wouldn't stay at his house and would make all of these excuses. And the reason was I didn't want to get in my school uniform in front of him. Yeah. So on some level, I knew they wasn't right. Yeah. And I kind of feel like I was sort of looking for a reaction. And the only way I was sort of just like discerning, was it right or wrong, was kind of people's reaction. And no one ever gave me a reaction. So I was like, okay, this must be fine then. And I mean, now that I've, a week ago I had a school uniform, but this week I don't have one anymore. So I'm sure it's fine. And I mean, he like tormented me for years. Like it was really bad. I remember our first date, he put a gram of ketamine on the table and was like, do it. And I didn't do it because I hadn't tried drugs then, but I started doing drugs with like a month, a couple of months later when we broken up. Um, and I remember sitting there thinking like, I don't know if he's joking. Yeah. And I reckon it was one of those situations where it was like, he was joking if I said no. But I think yeah. he would have let me do that obscene amount of drugs in one go, especially if I've never done drugs before. Yeah. I don't know what would have happened, but yeah, I mean. I think that's I mean, I grooming as well. It was, yeah. it was grooming because I left my virginity to him. And I remember the next day he pretended that he did. He was surprised. Yeah. I and think he was like, he, testing boundaries. Before, yeah, 100%. And his girlfriend yeah. before me was younger than me. And oh, I was just like, I was, why was I always around these kind of guys? But I guess... I just think it was familiarity for me. That's what I put it down to is like there was something I recognized in these people where in a fucked up way I felt. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Safe. Same. I really, really resonate with that. Yeah, it was a, it was like my relationships were just as fucked up as the crazy drug fueled one night stands I was having. But it was like those I was high and I was doing them because I was trying to walk the line of danger. With these, it was like, oh, this is fine. I'm going to be safe here because it feels familiar. Why does it feel familiar? And I hadn't yet clicked the reason why it felt familiar. But anyway, again, we'll go back to the story. So yeah, there was all these years of me acting out and getting labeled this like problem child I was getting kicked out of my house left right and center I was living with my godmother living with my dad who I didn't really have a relationship with but I'd pop up at his house every now and then like it was just really bad I was just sort of like past the parcel like sort of like a hot potato child basically I was just being passed around told that I was a terrible kid told that I had anger issues and this and that and you know my mom would always say to me you know I, I love you but I don't like you these kind of things and with my sister she was like you were the guinea pig now I know how to raise your sister oh, and this is, a big, this is a big factor of the next part of the story so you need to keep that in mind because that was the, since she was born it was oh you were the test drive and oh Charlie, when you're older you're going to be such a good parent one day because I've shown you what not to do and it was all this kind of language that obviously now I realize made me feel like worthless but at the time I just was used to it mm-hmm. it's so funny how you, how you realize things later on like look, hindsight is such a amazing gift I guess because you realize like whoa none of that was actually my doing it was just kind of ingrained into me but eventually you know I started working when I was 19 which was a good thing for me I started doing nails a very nice woman taught me how to do nails and I was like okay this has given me a bit of focus and because I had a job and I was focused because I had other jobs before that but I didn't really care if I showed up on a come down or whatever I'd get fired and I just didn't care but I cared about this job 
So I still, yeah. I was still partying, but like not as much. And I was, I, it, it, I think it saved me a little bit because it gave me my own money eventually, very slowly. It took me a lot of time to make money, but it eventually put me in a position where I could move out of my parents' house. I mean, I moved out in and out, in and out, but it was staying with random men. I remember I was, I moved out when I was 19 for the first time. And I was staying with this guy who like kind of was my boyfriend, but kind of wasn't my boyfriend, but kind of was only my boyfriend because if I slept with him, I didn't have to pay rent. And he was only a couple of years older than me for once. So it was kind of age appropriate, but he was a heroin addict. So... (laughs) You know, it was these kind of situations. Um, eventually, that that whole heroin thing got too much and spiraled out of control, and I had to go back to my parents. And that was, I think, the biggest turning point mentally because I was I had a little bit more clarity than I had before. And me and my mum, we were just coming to blows. I was self harming a lot around this time, and. I was self-harming actually the whole time, but in this time it was, I will say, the peak of my self-harm because it was like I had to go back into that situation, back into that household, back with this person that I had a fractured relationship with. My sister was coming up to the kind of age where I was when I was abused and I was seeing her life was so much better than mine was and I was happy for her, but it really highlighted a difference. Like, wow, things were wrong. And it was highlighting more things were wrong than I knew. But I was always very protective of her. I've never really been a sort of envious person. So I was very protective of her. And I was always watching everything like a hawk to make sure there were no signs of anything going on with her because I was just so hyper aware of it. And it was just, with the self-harm, I mean, trigger warning, but I guess the whole episode has a trigger warning, right? Like trigger (laughs) warning. Um, I never, I was a little bit of a cutter, but it wasn't really my thing. I was, I would knock myself out. I was a headbanger, right? And I went to the doctor myself when I was 17 about that. And I was like, I'm self-harming. And he said to me, you haven't got any visible cuts, so I can't help you. <gasps> and it was almost like, come back when you've got some some wounds. I was like, I knocked myself out. I've got a lot of hair. You can't see my skull, you know. But I was banging my head. And I would, like, um, scratch my face a lot. Yeah. So I would have red marks, but I would go after a couple of days. It wasn't like I would draw blood because my nails aren't knives, you know. I would scratch my face. I would knock myself out. And I would, like, spit at my body parts and stuff and like hit myself it was just horrible it was like a really violent difficult thing to be trapped into because I felt like I would I couldn't control it it was almost like a I don't want to like compare to other diagnoses but it was almost like a Tourette's kind of impulse is the way I would describe it not that I have that and know what that feels like but it was almost that kind of like you can't control what you're doing I would go into a different headspace and I would know what I was doing but I couldn't stop it and I I would do it in front of my parents and my sister which I, to this day, I feel really bad about self-harming in front of my younger sister. But I know that I couldn't control it. And I need, I hadn't had any therapy or anything yet or any help with that. And now like I sort of know how to stop it when I feel it's coming. But it was really, that was the darkest time of my life because I was back in that household. I was self-harming pretty much every day. We would have an argument about something every day and I would have a breakdown, like crying on, my, on the floor, like begging, like, please acknowledge what you've done. Like, I just wanted her to say that he was abusing me. And it was just, it was terrible. That was probably the, like, it was just terrible. She would admit it. And there were, there were points where she would admit that it happened. And I remember there was one point, maybe I was like 15, where she actually emailed his mum because she was a social worker. So she worked with children. And by law, if she sees this kind of information, she has to report it, right? She never even, she never even responded to the email. And he was tagged into it and he replied, I remember his exact words were, you need to um, help your daughter just get over it so we can all move on because it's ridiculous now. Like it's been 10 years, like not 10 years, but how many years was it? 
whatever amount of years, I'm not good at maths, but like you should be over this by now kind of thing. And he, his angle then was that I was traumatizing my sister by kind of having reactions. And at this time I'd been told that my sister knew about this. Like she'd been briefed about it and she knew it turned out that she hadn't. And I found out that she didn't know. And I found out because my sister was saying things to me, like my dad is the best dad in the world. And she was saying things to me like, which are innocent comments if you don't know what's going on. But I knew she was quite like an old soul. And I knew that she wouldn't say these things if she knew. To you especially. Yeah, I brought it up and I said, I don't think you've told her. Straight up. I said, because she she wouldn't say this to me. And it turned out she hadn't. I said, you need to tell her because she needs to understand why I'm like this. Because right now, you're, not, you're allowing another person to, to have this narrative of who I am. Yeah. It's this evil person. When you know that I'm struggling because you know what happened, she thinks I'm a violent maniac. Yeah. You know? And that's going to be more scary to her with no context. Yeah. And it's going to be horrible to tell her what happened. But at that time, I felt like it was the fair thing. I felt like this needs to be out in the open and addressed. This can't just be a family secret. It's doing no. too much damage. Definitely. So we sat her down and I told her, she, she asked me to tell her, which I was very unhappy about because it's like, why am I again doing all the work in this situation? Like he should be the one to tell her really, but here we are. So I sat down with her and I very like in a, with as little detail as possible way, kind of let her know what was going on. And she smashed up her whole bedroom and she was screaming at my mum, why have you let me be so horrible to my sister? Like, why have you, I never want to speak to this man again. Da, 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 da. And we had this very like intense release. We were all crying, but it was the first time in my life I felt supported. Yeah. And my mum said to me, this has gone on for too long. I think you should go to the police. And I was like, it was like the best, one of the best moments of my life, even though it was so horrible because it was validation that this wasn't all in my head. Yes. And I finally felt that I had a family. Yeah. Because up until then, these people were just people that I was related to that let bad things happen to me. I didn't care. Yeah. You know, I didn't have that connection with them. I could never hug my mom, even as a child. Like, I don't think we had a connection before this happened. I, could ne- I couldn't. I never. It was, we had a weird relationship. That was the first time I felt like a mother-daughter bond. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember waking up the next day and feeling like, like a baptism or something like I felt like a different person I felt like I could float out of bed I felt so light it was like I I, it was like a out of body experience I just felt like a different person that day and I got up and I went to work and I just was like on this emotional high I think it must have been kind of like um you know when people have all these intense hormones when they give birth and then they have that hormone switch the next day and then after that maybe you get postpartum depression because it's like the, the come down of the high of labor yeah. It almost was like that. My emotions were just so out of key. And then I left I remember my boyfriend. That was a 35-year-old. He was in a band. He was playing in our town that day. So I was going to go meet him after work because he was in London. I was in Brighton. So I went after work to his show. And I was so happy to tell him, like, oh, my gosh, I, can't, I can go to the police. That we're going to finally sort this out. Like, and I should mention that when my sister was r- around 12, she out of nowhere said she didn't want to stay at his house anymore on the weeks she was meant to be at his house. And I was like, red flag, red flag, red flag. And I was saying to my mom, this is why we need to tell her. That was part of the reason as well. I needed her to know that something happened in case something was happening to her. 
Yes. That's an important part of this story. So I was like, right, I'm going to go to the police. We're going to find out what's going on. We're going to see who this man really is. Was it just some one-off thing? Because some people don't like their own kids, which is a horrible thing to say, but it's true. Some people are only attracted to other people's children. They, they don't see their own kids in the same way. I don't know. So I wanted to make sure this wasn't going to happen to her and also find out was it happening to other whoever. I just I was like, finally, I can find out everything. We're going to get yeah, to the bottom yeah. of this. As I was walking to the show, I got a text message from my mum saying, if you ever want to talk about this situation again, don't come home. I can't stop your sister from having a father. We've talked about it all day because I suggested she had a day off school. I was like, you're not sending her to school today. That's too much heavy information. She needs to stay at home and sit with this. Because, you know, I, 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 I've been to school with that information in my head. I know what it's like, right? So I was like, you're not sending, she's not going to school. I'll call them if you don't. But she's like, no, I agree with you. I said, sit at home and just look after her. Have a nice day with her. I'll, I'll be back um, tomorrow, whatever. Yeah, don't come home. She was like, I can't. You didn't. She basically, she, and it, it irritated me because when I was younger, my dad was a criminal, but he wasn't that kind of criminal. And he was banned from our house. Yeah. And, you know, I had no relationship with him until I was 21. My mom got back with him for a year. Suddenly he wasn't banned from my house anymore. And she got back, you know, it was, but somehow for my sister, it was like, she has to have a father what happens with you isn't serious enough for me to stop her having a parent. Do not come back if you're going to talk about this. It's just, I mean, I'm so sorry, but she had that moment of courage, but she just couldn't go through with it. But I think, you know, people often say things like, especially with, crimes against children like ah, I'm gonna kill him like you know children are the most vulnerable blah 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 but when it comes to the crux of it people actually don't take it as seriously as you would hope I was I remember oh god it was horrible I was at this show and I was like he had to perform I was like no no no. I didn't even really tell him until after this performance because it was like a really important show I was like just just but I remember I was standing in like um, watching from a kind of balcony thing with some of his like tour managers and stuff and they were all trying to having a conversation and I was just crying my eyes out and no one was really like asking me what was wrong it was just like a really because it was dark you know I don't know if they could even see that I was crying but I was just like in bits and I remember I went back with him that night on the tour bus I was like I just well just go and stay with you whatever and then I came back I had to come back for work I came back I just went to my house I just got all my things with my aunt. My aunt is like my ride or die. We've both been disowned from the family since this happened. She's the only one that had my back. Um, so I got all my things with her. I stayed with her for a minute. Went back to my boyfriend's. I stayed with him for a while. And while I was there, I said, I'm still going to the police because it's in my head now. That's what I have to do. And I never really had the, the thought that I could go to the police. It was just a kind of, it wasn't a part of the plan. But I was, I'm doing it. I'm going to do it because she said I should. I actually took it back. She, I know that someone agrees that like, I'm doing it. Yeah. So I did. Um, my aunt came to all the police sessions with me. I had all these interviews. They, they interviewed him. They interviewed my sister, interviewed my mum. My mum kept on delaying her her interviews um, for a long time. So that was like weeks and weeks and weeks. When they interviewed her, she said that she thought he was a very safe man. She had no concern about him. Da, 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 da. And she thinks it was just a drunken one-off situation. They all denied that he beat me up. They all denied the comments about my body and stuff. Um, that was all denied. He said that it was all like ludicrous and he admitted to that one thing. <sighs> they, they just all basically rallied together and just had, they all had the same story kind of thing. So I was kind of not really believed. And it, with historical cases, it's much harder. It was 10 years later. I was 23 when I was going to the police. Um, 
I think 10 years, I don't know how old it was, but I think it was 10 years later. Um, <laughs> I was going to just go with that because that's how I just makes it easier for me. The, the woman that was doing all of my police interviews was, she actually became my customer at work in that, during that same time. Cause I worked on the road from the police station and she was like, not doing a very good job with my case. She was like ignoring my calls and stuff, like not giving me any feedback, but then she'd book nail appointments with me. And like, I'd go and have my interview. Read the room. I mean, it's probably not legal. Need to come to your salon. I was just like, what the hell? I had to put a complaint about her in the end because she was like missing phone calls, appointments and stuff we were meant to have. In the end, I mean, I went there and she said, listen, it's not going to go to court. I'm really sorry, but it's not going to go to court because there's proof on his like records that he has been to AA meetings since the assault, which shows that he took initiative to change his own life. Um, I didn't even know that was a thing. So I didn't even make it to see the judge. That's, that's like, just, you know, abs- what, what a, what a thing to say. And I was just like, yo, this is like, this has happened before. Like I've had people tell me this before and it is absolutely outrageous because it's literally, let's contextualize this. Child sex offenders are often not one-offs. Okay. Second of all, if you just change the crime, you can hear how absurd that is. Like that's like saying. It makes you a pedophile. No, but that's also like saying (laughs) a murderer. Yeah. A murderer went to therapy. Therefore they are now. They did what they've worked on themselves. Yeah. So we're not going to, what do you fucking mean? That is just, like, it is infuriating. Is it just AA? Like what other ways can you better yourself? Like, it, yeah. yeah, it was really difficult. One of the um, things that I'm, I spoke to a police officer here a while ago about how they do go through historical child sexual abuse crimes. Yeah. Um, and he said to me, a lot of it is corroboration. So if you've told consistently for the past 10 years the same story to multiple different people and they can validate that they have heard you consistently say the same story in different settings with people who can't collude together, that shows your authenticity well, listen, in the fact. You're going to love the next part then because there was um, when I was finding out what happened, the whole golden sort of egg that I had in this historical case was that email that was yes. sent, right? Because I still had it somewhere in my inbox. So I thought I, she sent it to me. She sent it to a couple of other people that were like CC'd in to make sure um, it was sent to me, to him, to the mum. I think that was it. Maybe to my aunt. She had a different email address because she'd been hacked, so she couldn't get it. I somehow couldn't find it. I think I might have deleted it because it was like causing me, like when I saw it in my inbox. So I think I just deleted it one day. But my mum had it, and I said to her when she sent me that message saying "Don't come home," I said to her, "Fine, you don't have to help me. I, I don't really have much expectations of her helping me at this point. I was like, you don't have to help me. That's fine. Like go back on your word. That's what you do. It's fine. All I ask is that you play fairly in this case because I'm still going to the police." All the evidence you promised me you were going to show, i.e. the emails, the text messages. We had a text message from that week that was him admitting it again. He said, oh, is she still talking about this, really? She needs to just get over it. Like, it happened a long time ago. Like, he kind of admitted in the text message. I said, keep those messages. And if you, because if you think this is all fine, you will have no problem showing it. And that's all I ask, is that you're fair. We can go our separate ways. I haven't spoken to her in five or six years since this happened. Like, we can have a clean break. Just be fair. She was like, yeah, I agree. It's fine. When I asked the woman, like the policewoman, I was like, but you saw the messages, right? What messages? She didn't show me any messages. Mm. 
I was like, are you motherfucker? So I was like, okay, well, he's just saying it's not going to school. I said, well, listen, if I can get these messages to you, can we have another session? Like, she's like, okay, yeah, that's fine. So we'll see. I can, I can approach the judge again. We'll see what happens. Um, my aunt was so fuming. She was so furious. She, so she was like, I'm going to ring her. I don't, you don't have to do anything. I'm going to deal with this. I was like, okay, thank you. So she rang her when we got out, when she got in her car. And she was like, why didn't you show these messages? She was like, they didn't ask me to. Oh, she, come she on. Said, why would they show you, ask you for something you don't know about? You should, your end of the bargain was you were going to volunteer this information, right? She was like, anyway, I've deleted them now. Gone. So I can't. And my aunt asked her, she said, at the end of the day, this all comes down to one question. She was like, do you think it is okay for a man to get in bed with your 13 year old daughter? She said yes and put the phone down. <gasps> I've got chills. I just yeah. want to punch her. So that's I want why, to punch like, her. When you were saying earlier, we always ask what the woman did. I was like, it kind of was, I, I see them both as guilty as each other in a situation. They are. And I don't want to take away from that. Like when I'm saying that, it's because we often like don't listen yeah. or don't think about the perpetrator. Like, you know what, like that whole narrative, what was she wearing? It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah, she, your mum has failed you and your mum is is culpable in this. And and your mum's also culpable for putting your sister in danger. Like yeah. that's not, that's negligence at its finest. That is awful. And it's just, it's traumatic for you because having this relationship and I can hear, hearing your story, I can hear the chaos that you must have had going through your mind while you're trying to find your feet in life, get through your trauma and and, and kind of reconcile the fact that your family yeah. doesn't care. Like yeah. that is fucking And awesome. that's why I say it was the the knock-on effect is what I'm most angry about. Like mm. it's just I and that's what I hate about these stories is like I just always see it as this one like incident in this guy, this creep's life, it changes like the whole trajectory of the rest of these survivors' lives. Like nothing will be the same after that. Even if you get a good life, like I have a good life now, but I would have had a different good life if this is going to happen to me. Like Definitely. it just the 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 many many knock on effects blow my mind, you know. Yeah, and, and that's the lack of And you know, it's like I mean, I can say like I'm fine now, like I am, but I'm still in therapy every week. Sometimes I'm like I've got nothing to tell my therapist, but I still have to go. You know. Yeah. Like, I can't charge all this money to him. Yeah. There's, like, I take medication every day, you know. Like, there's things that I have to do for the rest of my life that are not my fault. And I know mental illness, you know, it can happen from by itself. Chances are I would have had depression anyway and all of these things, but it didn't help the situation, you know. Right. And that is what irritates me the most about it. And it's like he's just having a normal life, walking around. I mean, his life is substantially worse than mine, Anyway, he's never really made much of himself. He's never really amounted to anything. He is just a creep. Yeah. But he still gets to freely be the creep he chooses to be. Yeah. I mean, the blessing that you have is that it's on record that you made a complaint. Yeah. Um, but I don't so agree. Happens, there, but, you know. Yeah. I don't agree with the outcome of that. And I think that, you know, corroboration of, of an account can be from your boyfriend at the time who you've consistently told your friends at the time, like it doesn't have to be family. And I think that's a failure on their part. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I would probably, if you wanted to, I think that you could reopen it or go back if you had new evidence maybe or something just to get it really looked at. And to be honest, I just, 
I don't think I could do it again. I have to yeah, put these that. people so behind me. And it's funny you say like the people around you. It's like the person that was the most like sorry was the friend that was staying over when he tried to come in again. And she, we're, we're still best friends. There's eight friends since we were six. And she's always like, I just can't believe like when he did that at that time, I didn't realize that's what he was trying to do. I always knew he was weird. Like, and she's so sorry. I was like, why are you sorry? You were 12 or 13. Like, why you're apologizing to more than the adults in the situation yeah. this is like because there's empathy for somebody who clearly yeah. quite loves you a lot yeah. so and it's yeah I mean it caused a lot of things like it caused I mean my my aunt who I talk to now but on my dad's side I, I didn't speak to her for 10 years my mom always told me oh she hates us and I it was only when it came she heard down the grapevine that I was going to the police and this came out she was like oh my God, I have to tell Charlie. And I saw her in the street. Actually, I saw my cousin in the street, her daughter. And she shouted down the street at me, I need to talk to you. And what had happened was my dad had sort of mentioned like what was going on because I told him what had happened. And I do remember him coming to the house and he he was trying, I didn't know, I didn't know at the time why they had this big argument, but he was trying to get custody of me. Right. Yeah. And, but he was an addict, so it wasn't going to work. But he still to this day is like, I can't believe I didn't go to the police. We haven't got a great relationship, but he also apologises profusely that he didn't go to the police. Another person that didn't go to the police about this guy because he was a criminal, so he couldn't talk to the police, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, but this aunt, she was saying, we heard about it. And then um, I saw your mum in the street and I said to her, there's no way you're keeping my niece in the house of that paedophile. And she said, oh, no, 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 it's not true. So they thought that my mum had lied about it to fuck with my dad. So they didn't speak to us for 10 years because they thought we made it, made it up because she told them we made it up. And then it was only when I went to the police and she was like, oh, my gosh, you weren't lying. She was, oh And she said, I don't care. She said, to this day, she, she basically gave her an ultimatum. She was, like, she was like, you either go to the police or I can't speak to you ever again. And she didn't go to the police. So she was like, I must have thought she made it up then. She couldn't have, I couldn't fathom that she didn't go to the police kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. Definitely. You know? So she was, she was like, when I see him in the streets to this day, I still shout like fucking pedophile at him. So I want everyone in the streets to know. But I, I she, she's another person. I didn't know if I could go to the police. I couldn't tell if it was true. Like, it was just a lot of fucked up shit going on. No one just went with their gut. It was all these he say, she say gossip things in the way. And, yeah, but it was like, and it, even that, I was estranged from that side of my family for 10 years before I got estranged from my other side of my family, all because of this one fucking guy. Like, it's just, and it's just absolute insanity. It definitely is. And it's like, you shouldn't be defending yourself. You're the child in, in this situation. It's, it's I didn't not know any of that at the time. I had no idea. I just thought, she's like, oh, your aunt hates us. Cross her over when you see her. So then also, you thought, as I was a teenager, I was crossing over and I saw my cousin. They thought that I didn't like them. Yeah. So, like, you, you just know, like, my mom just, like orchestrated all of these lies to play us all against each other so the truth wouldn't come out. Yeah, definitely. Oh, Charlie made it up. I didn't fucking make up anything. So yeah, I mean what I will say is like kind of I I would say I've kind of been disowned. It's not a legal thing, but I feel like I wasn't really given much choice. But it was my choice to not interact with these people again. And I will say that is the biggest gift I've ever given myself. And if people were scared to step away from family, like family isn't as big a deal as you think it is in the way that it isn't dependent on blood. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You should keep yourself in a situation because what I heard a lot in this situation is I have people say it to me to this day. I can't go back to my hometown that often because it's very small and I'll see her friends. I don't really know the full story. And they're confident enough to say to me, oh, Shani, but you know, at the end of the day, it was her dad. As if blood is thicker than this. Do you know what I mean? And I just urge anyone that's keeping themselves in these environments just because it's, oh, but it's my mom. Oh, but it, 
just leave free yourself like for real that is that's advice exactly right that's and, and, because that's the exactly I right that situation, even when I was like moved out of living with whoever but I was still it, the authenticity was still in my world I was still in this like thing I was going to therapy at that time when I was like 22 but I was still in talks with them I still knew them and it was like I, I had to be completely away from it for therapy to work I couldn't still be like dragged down by the energy of them because they're still they're still in that place like they're still covering each other's secret I can't be around it and now like my therapist is amazing like it works so well I'm seeing progress like I'm actually having a normal life like sometimes I'm like waiting for bad things to happen because I'm just like I'm not used to normality like it's so <laughs> yeah. boring almost. I like, feel lovely I yeah I wake up every day in this gorgeous place that I now live in with my amazing boyfriend and his brother who we live with and it's like so nice and like this can't be right like surely something's gonna happen and I'm in therapy now learning that I do deserve this and like this is fine and like I'm allowed to have nice things and like nothing has to go wrong that's so wonderful I'm so glad to hear that yeah. like especially as I well, like I think back to the family thing like yeah you don't owe anyone fucking shit for being related to you like you don't owe no. anyone shit if somebody is toxic if somebody is abusive you have hopefully at this stage or I hope that once you do find the power leave yeah. like you don't yeah. owe them anything when people turn around and say but you know it's my mum or you know don't be mean to her she's your mother at the end of the day it's yeah. like Shh, she's fucking abusing me I hear that so she's much affecting me mentally like, yeah I'm like, did you oh, hear the story I'm not, no. <laughs> like, that's not that's not a definition of a mother in my eyes no but what the fuck are you going to gain from having that in your life absolutely nothing no. but negative I always think like oh my gosh imagine if I was still like I was still connected to my family and then what I'm gonna like you know plan to have a child am I gonna have these people around my kid no, no. like these people that don't see abuse as something that's Mm-mm. like no so it would have had to happen at some point if I, I was I'm the kind of person that wants to have a family so even if I was still with them it would have to end at some point because my switch would go off straight away so, you know yeah to protect your own from and from one what thing you I will say through. as well not rep- like the outcome of that police situation confirmed everything that I was scared of when I got raped at 19 because when I was raped I didn't there's two people I didn't go to when I was raped and I think this is very telling of what had happened with my first instance of abuse I didn't tell my mum or the police my mum found out once I got raped when I was chatting to a friend about it while I was drunk in front of her and I was like oh I forgot to tell you that and it was just like oh like you got raped like it was just casual and I didn't go to her because I knew I was really conditioned that that was not going to bring me any kind of anything And I didn't go to the police because I wasn't allowed to go to the police the first time. And I was just conditioned that it wasn't going to do anything helpful. And now I know they were telling me it wasn't going to be helpful because they didn't want to get us taken away from them. But now I had that outcome. I was like, this is why people don't report it. And it's so disheartening because you get there and nobody helps you. And And it's like, I want to encourage people to report it because I wanted people to report things as soon as they happen. Because I honestly think if I would have reported my rape, I would have got justice. Yeah. And I think what I always encourage people to do is if it's just happened to go 
and at least get the testing done and then you can make up your mind later. Um, But I I think when it comes down to what you said before about believing survivors and you can hear in your story how awful it was for you to be consistently gaslit, to be consistently, Mm. you know, have your own reality tested, questioned, your narrative not believed, you can hear how damaging that is. So when it's when you say believe survivors, it's not just so that they can go to the police in the future. It's so that they don't second guess every single aspect and part of their fucking life and and feel invalidated all the time. I think that's really important too. Constantly. That's something I still deal with. Like constantly. In relationships especially I need validation like around the clock. Like And I'm getting better, but the gaslighting, I think, is what sent me the most um, out of control of my mental health. I do think that's what it was. Because let me tell, this is a hopeful thing I can say. Once I, like, moved out of, I moved out of my mom's house for the second time and I was older. After I went to the police, as soon as I left that situation, bear in mind I was self-harming every day, I did not self-harm again. And that was like an addiction I was dealing with and it just stopped. Yeah. And I was like, because there's no frustration in here where I'm living now in my new life. There's no one, I, there's no one sitting opposite me, like gaslighting me 24 seven. I haven't got this frustration. And I, that's when I was like, whoa, like a lot of these things that I was told, well, you're just like this, you know, it's just you, you've just got mental health issues, Johnny. And I'm like, there were reasons for these things. Yeah. I think I've only relapsed on self-harm maybe like, two or three times in the past five years like I was doing it every single day and that ha- you, do you see what I'm saying it's like yeah leave please leave these situations like yeah leave and don't turn back really? and I think take don't be don't feel guilty about the fact that you've left for yourself but feel proud of yourself for putting yourself first which often people who are in this shit with their family they've never done before they've never put themselves first you think they don't deserve it and that's the big thing after being abused. It's like realizing that you're you're worth something and you deserve good things. It's Definitely. like I feel like I feel like I always had to be in a state of just being grateful that like I was just like alive. And like, oh, I'm just grateful that like today I wasn't abused. And like, do you know what I mean? It's like I'm allowed to have more than just the fact that I'm breathing. Yeah. Just like, the fact I am allowed. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's not just like, oh, I'll be happy that it's not happening anymore. And like, oh, you didn't get raped today. Woo! Like, I mean, that is good. We all deserve not to be abused, but like that wasn't, that was like, I thought that was the best thing I could achieve, but no. And you've now come so far and you're doing so well for yourself. Can you talk a bit about like what you're doing now and how you got there? So you've got your, your books and and you're working and you're living in London. The first, so the, yeah, I moved to London. So it was, I was still doing nails when I moved to London and I got, I just, yeah, I had to want another traumatic event. I had a traumatic abortion and I was like, fuck this. And I just moved city. And I was like, I'm just going to start afresh. You know, that typical movie, new yeah. life. Not in, facing in your life, maybe. Place. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, um, and that's when I was working on the first book. And that was good because it, I, I, same as kind of what you're doing. I got into a community of a lot of other people that were going through similar things. The problem that I had at that time was I thought that I was more healed than I was. And I was overextending myself a bit. And I realized that I can't talk about abuse as much as I thought I could. Yeah. Because at that time, I put the book out and I was doing a lot of events and talks. And I was branding myself as kind of like, I was I was aiming towards doing a sort of like events of survivors and stuff. And like really putting myself in that sort of wellness, like survivor um, 
what's that word? Like industry. I don't like that word. That sounds like a business, but you know what I mean? In that sort of space. And I've sort of moved away from that now because I just don't think I'm equipped to be in it. I am and I'm not. But I also didn't want every all of my work to be centered around the things that I'd been through in that way anymore. I kind of wanted to look, <laughs> it's going to be kind of funny, but like I have different problems I can talk about as well. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just kind of, yeah, I wanted to just not look at different things and not be sort of tied to one thing. So with the new book, I am talking about all, all kinds of different issues and good things as well. And I think I tried a lot of different stuff career-wise. I've I've done, I mean, a great after a trauma career, I started stripping for metal bands because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I am a woman here. To be honest, it was really fun, but I was also doing it while I was high and drunk. That's why it was a problem. Like there's no problem with stripping. I was actually, I was doing that again, but I would like to do it sober. That's <laughs> what I would like to do. Um, but yeah, I was doing all different jobs and I've always been the kind of person, if I want to do something, I'll just go and do it. So I tried a lot of different things and I feel like now I don't need to be sort of hosting so many events. I just need to be writing. That's what I'm good at. So I'm just going to stick with that at the moment. So yeah, I'm writing books. Um, I work for like a design agency, which is completely nothing to do with my writing, but that's the goal is just to write. And I do still do workshops because that is one way I do want to sort of like give back as it were. I like giving people the tool of writing yeah. because I, from a very poor background, we couldn't afford therapy. Writing is free. Yeah, Anyone can pick up a pen and maybe it's not going to fix you, but it helps a lot. Yeah, definitely. I will it's a tool to use in the toolbox. Oh, yeah. I think that's something amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one, one thing that I do. I do still run workshops every now and then and sort of do journaling sessions with people and just teach people how to write poetry. Cause I think it's a skill that everyone should have access to. So I do free sessions or pay what you can. I just think people need to know free ways to look after themselves because we don't all have money. You know, it's like a privilege to be able to look after ourselves. I feel so like, I feel like the richest woman in the world that I can afford to give myself therapy. That is the long and short of it. But yeah, so um, I've got off topic again because I'm just getting so passionate about everything now. But yeah, books. What I'm doing at the moment, um, so far, so close is the project. If you follow me on any of my socials, at by Chani Ra or at Princess Chani Ra, the link is in my bio. You can find the book if you want the book. Um, and we can just, hopefully you'll find something in there that you can connect with. That's all right. I'll link in. Um, I'll link in the book. I'll link in all of your socials. So please go and support a local business as well that is um, doing so many wonderful things. So I'm going to get Chani to read a bit of something now. Um, and yeah, please go and support her. Go and buy the book. Um, it's not expensive. Go buy it. <laughs> no. Okay, I'm going to read this one because. I think it links back to um, what I was saying about like the knock-on effects. Um, I feel like something a lot of people will go through is like becoming perfectionists after they've been traumatized, like and really sort of critiquing themselves heavily. So I wrote this poem. It's called A Note on Rage. I've never read this one before because I do readings on my Instagram, but I haven't read this one before. It says, for so long, I have felt flung between extremes. My childhood spent in unfiltered rage. My womanhood spent trying my hardest to let my softest sides free, but closely monitoring myself in a way I can only describe as perfectionism. Slowly allowing myself to express anger without spending the following days as a flagellant, 
is a task I did not anticipate to absorb so much of my energy. I see almost everybody I meet as a child. At least once a day, I feel like a child. As a child, I was emotionally raising myself. My inner child is trying to raise the inner children I see in everybody else. The confusion, the ever-changing roles, the never knowing my lane makes my blood boil. I am such a sweet-hearted woman that sometimes I want to smash everything as far as the eye can see. It barely makes sense to me, so I would never expect you to follow. It's just poignant, isn't it? That's so wonderful. It was a shorter way of saying everything I was trying to say in this podcast of just how much trauma changes you. Definitely. Well, I'm so proud of you and I'm so thankful for you for coming on and telling us your story. Um, I think it's going to help a lot of people specifically with with what it is leaving abuse, leaving a shitty family, leaving them in your wake and, and moving forward and making something of yourself because everybody deserves it. And I know that this sounds awful, but nobody's coming to save you. And it's, you know, when you're, you get the strength within yourself to do it, life will become so much better. And I have one thing I've realized on that note, which is something I'm always a bit scared of saying, because I I think before I finish the sentence, it kind of sounds bad, but it really doesn't get better. We just get better. The situation is always going to be as bad as the situation is. And I feel like I spent a lot of time waiting for it to get better or for me to feel differently about it. But I just had to look after myself. But I just wanted to say that because I feel like I've, some a lot of the messages I see put out about this kind of healing stuff can sort of put a too high an expectation on how good it's going to be. And I feel like a lot of people were searching for this positivity and this amazing like pivotal moment that I just think is unrealistic. And I just think we just have to try and transcend our situations and we have the right to always think they were shit. Yeah. But also well, I you- love what you're doing on this podcast as well. I think it's really like amazing that you are able to do this because as I said before, I couldn't, I had to kind of stop being in that space for a while. Definitely. And so I know how it is and I just want to give you some respect for that because it's Thank not- you. Um, and I make sure that I... Um, you know, I've had to cancel a couple of interviews sometimes and, um, it's just because I want to give it the justice that it needs. And if I'm not fully with it, I can't support it the way that I need to. But I think, yeah, what you just said is so incredibly amazing as well. And it does paint that picture exactly the way that it needs to be painted. Leaving your family and stuff, you're not going to leave and experience euphoria. You're not going to have an immediate improvement in your life. You're probably going to struggle. There's probably going to be things, but that's what life is. But you're going to have a much better experience and a much better go at achieving the things that you want when you leave that fucking shit behind. And that's so good. Like I had to cancel you last week and it's like I'm in a good place, but I'm still allowed to be sad about it leaving my family was the best thing I've ever done but it still sucks I still struggle with it but the amount that it sucks does not outweigh what I've been able to do since I left and that's just absolutely absolutely thank you for coming on anyone wants to message and talk about family stuff like my dms are open because I know it's difficult it's hard to find people that have like been disowned for this reason as well so I I'm there for anybody that needs to talk about that absolutely wonderful so I will link in all of your um, how to connect with you, all of your um, – and make sure that you go buy her book, um, show some support. Um, <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, but thank you so much for coming thank on. You. And for now, this is Reclaim Me signing off. 
This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.